Our passage this morning is 1 Thessalonians 5, starting in verse 23 and to the end of the letter. 1 Thessalonians 5, starting in verse 23. Here's what the text says. Now, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. You may be seated. Let's pray. Almighty, eternal, and merciful God, your word is a lamp unto our feet. Your word is a light unto our path. Open our minds, Father, that we may understand your word this morning. And by the power of your spirit, Conform us to what we have understood so that we may be pleasing unto your majesty, Father. We pray all of this through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. One of the things you'll hear if you study church history at all, or even if you try to study Roman Catholicism or sometimes Eastern Orthodoxy, uh, is this phrase, it's Latin, but don't go to sleep. It's the only Latin in the sermon, okay? It says, lex orandi, lex credendi. It's a handy little phrase, and, and what it essentially means, kind of a loose translation, is the law of prayer is the law of belief. In other words, kind of what they're getting at with it is, if you want to know what we believe, listen to the content of our prayers, Often you'll hear this if you know someone who's an Orthodox, capital O Orthodox Christian. They don't have, they don't write books on theology. They don't really write systematic theologies. If you ask them, well, how do I know what you believe? They'll tell you, listen to what we pray. And this is true in in principle. If you want to know what I believe about God, if you want to know what I think is important in the Christian life, If you want to know my heart's deepest desires, you could ask me, but maybe I wouldn't tell you. Maybe I'm not really aware of some of the things I I really believe or some of the things that my heart truly desires, or or maybe I might give you a pious-sounding answer, but that does not contain the, the truth. But if you listened to how I pray, if you listened to what I pray for, If you listen to how I address God, you could quite easily deduce my beliefs, my desires, my priorities. And this is true for all of us. And it's especially true of the Apostle Paul. And so this morning, we're going to examine one of his prayers here at the very end of 1 Thessalonians. And we're going to lift some truths about God, about who God is, and about what the Christian life is from God. His prayer here. Now we're finally at the end of 1 Thessalonians. 
Um, if, if you're new here, we have a, three pastors, and um, each one of our pastors is kind of working their way through, through different books of the Bible. So Pastor Rudolph is working his way through Genesis. We'll continue in that next week. I've been working on 1 Thessalonians for a while. Josh is working through 1 John. And then, um, actually, there's a sermon card in the front of your pew if you want to see the schedule. Uh, coming up in March, I'll be starting on Galatians, which I'm very excited for. But back to 1 Thessalonians. We're at the end. We're going to look at his, his closing prayer and some of his concluding remarks. We will talk about the holy kiss. Don't worry. Put your chapstick on, okay? Just kidding. This is inspired God-breathed scripture. Now, there's a tendency when we read some of these New Testament letters to kind of just gloss over the beginning or the end. Okay, he's just kind of finishing up, but this isn't the meat of it. But there is meat here. There is profit for us in this prayer and in these concluding remarks. But let's remember briefly what Paul has been dealing with here in 1 Thessalonians. Well, the first half of this letter really had to do with Paul's thankfulness for God's work amongst the Thessalonian church. Remember, Paul and Timothy had planted the church in Thessalonica in the midst of a ton of opposition and persecution. Paul and his team were were chased out of the city shortly after planting the church, and so they were worried. They didn't know the status of this church. They didn't know if these young believers had persevered or not. They didn't know if their faith had been snuffed out by the enemy and by the persecution that they were enduring. Paul finds out from Timothy that their faith had endured. Not only was the church surviving, but it was thriving in the midst of persecution. This church of of new believers was standing strong in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, out of that report, Paul writes this letter. The second half of this letter, Paul begins to instruct them and remind them of things he taught them while he was there. He reminds them how to live in a way that pleases God. He reminds them that God's will for their life, God's plan for their life, is their sanctification, their holiness. They are to live in in sexual purity and holiness. He instructs them to love each other like family and to grow more and more in this love. And then he comforts and encourages them with his teaching concerning the return of Christ and the great resurrection of Christ of the dead in which they will see the loved ones in Christ who had gone before them in death. In chapter 5, he instructs them again on how to live peaceably together as a church in light of Christ's coming. So these are some of the main themes we've seen in this letter, perseverance, sanctification, and a church body permeated with the love and peace that only the Holy Spirit can give. Now, this is important to remember for our passage today because in Paul's concluding prayer, he kind of sums up and ties together all of these themes. Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is nothing if not extremely intentional with the language that he uses, and especially in his prayers. So, let's look at his prayer. Again, if you have not done so, go ahead and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5.23. We're going to camp out here, and let me just give you a heads up. We're going to spend most of our time on his prayer, and then we'll address his concluding remarks at the end. Let's look at Paul's prayer and see what it reveals to us about God and about ourselves. Paul prays, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. May your whole spirit and soul and body 
be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the first thing I want you to notice is the fact that Paul ends in prayer. You see, Paul has spent uh, the, the whole paragraph before exhorting, really the two chapters before this, exhorting, instructing, challenging, commanding, teaching these young believers what to do. And now he turns to prayer. Why? Because Paul knows that the only chance that this church has, that any Christian has, at successfully obeying Christ and persevering in Christ comes through prayer. Paul knows that all of his apostolic teaching and preaching, apart from the work of the Spirit, apart from the work of God in their hearts, is useless. It's useless unless God implants these truths in their minds, engraves these truths on their hearts. And so, Paul prays, not as a formality, as a necessity. He instructs them in how to obey God, and then he asks God to fulfill in them his own commandments. That is the importance of prayer in the Christian life. Prayer is one of, if not the most essential means that God has graciously given to us, brothers and sisters, to access his power and his blessing. Prayer is essential. If nothing else, we must be a people of prayer. We must be a church body filled with prayer. We'll see this again later in our text. So Paul prays here. We must notice that. But what does he pray for? What is the the content of his prayer? Remember, by analyzing this, we'll be able to to learn something of, of what Paul believes about God, what the Holy Spirit through Paul is teaching us about God in the Christian life. Look again at verse 23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. May your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He prays, and he prays to the God of peace himself. That's what Paul says. Now, this is significant. Paul ends many of his letters with this phrase, the God of peace. And here he adds himself. Now, one of the major differences in how the English language works and how the Greek language works is is how word order affects meaning, right? So, in English, if you took a sentence like this and jumbled all the words around, you would lose the meaning of the sentence, the way that we understand a sentence, the way that we understand how words are functioning is by their word order. The Greek isn't like this. In Greek, word order doesn't really affect what a verb is doing or what a noun is doing. And so what a Greek author will do if he wants to emphasize a word or a concept is just throw it at the beginning of the sentence. And that's exactly what Paul does here. Now, looking at his prayer... What word do you think might Paul want to emphasize? What concept? Sanctify? No. Maybe blameless? No, that's not what he's emphasizing. Maybe Jesus Christ, that's the Sunday school answer. That's not the first word in the sentence. The first word in this sentence is himself. Himself. So if you had to kind of just go word for word, it wouldn't make any sense in English. It sounds like Yoda, but the word order reads, himself now, the God of peace, sanctify you. And brothers and sisters, our God, the God of the universe, 
is a personal God. This sanctification that Paul is praying for, this this preservation, this keeping, is going to be accomplished by God himself. Not from a distance, but inside of us. It is God who sanctifies us. He is the one who will make us completely and entirely holy. He is the one who will preserve us blameless until the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Himself. He will not delegate this work to someone else. This is the work of God Himself. Christian, the Almighty God of the universe is at work inside of you and is at work for you on your behalf. Not in theory, not by proxy, not in some abstract concept of theology. No, the God of peace himself is at work in you. Now, all of this is a personal work of God. We see that from the word himself. But it is the work of God, the God of peace. Now, why peace here? Why why does Paul qualify this, the God of peace? He could just say God himself, that would be fine. But he adds this, of peace. What we see in chapter 5, verse 13, he had instructed the Thessalonian church, be at peace among yourselves. And now he here is subtly reminding them that the origin and the source of this peace that they are to exhibit is God. This word peace is, is, shows up all over Scripture. And it's interesting because in most places in Scripture, it functions almost as a synonym for salvation. The gospel is called the good news of peace in the book of Acts. Jesus is called the Prince of Peace in Isaiah chapter 9. In Galatians 5, we see that peace is a fruit of the Spirit. Similar concept here. It's something that comes from God. It's not something that we can muster up within ourselves. And this word peace is the Greek translation for the Hebrew word shalom. You've probably heard that word before. God is the God of of shalom. See, sometimes when we think of peace, because in English has other baggage, we simply think of, you know, two countries at peace. Okay, so they're not fighting. But the biblical idea of peace is, is much larger. It's much more all-encompassing. The idea of shalom in the Bible is so big, it's, it's, it's almost impossible to define with one word. It, it contains the idea of, of wholeness, of harmony of well-being, of security, of calmness. It's the concept of, of all things rightly ordered as God intended them to be. It's essentially everything that we are yearning for as human beings. Everything that we feel is lacking in this earth now. Peace, shalom, is, is what was lost at the fall It's what the creation itself is is yearning for, for God to restore. And, brothers and sisters, what we have seen is that it will be restored when Christ returns. The very city, we sang about this, the very city that descends out of heaven, when the new heavens and the new earth are created, in the book of Revelation, is called the New Jerusalem. 
Jerusalem, in Hebrew, Yerushalom. Jerusalem translated means something like they will experience shalom or they will experience peace or, or their possession will be shalom. This is the end of all things. Revelation 21, John writes this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. The ancient mindset, the sea is not a place of peace. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven and from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, this is a description of peace. This is a description of shalom. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself, there's that word again, will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. That is peace. That is shalom. And it comes in Revelation because God is there. This is why the gospel is called the good news of peace. It is an announcement of that coming. It is where everything is headed in God's awesome and amazing sovereign plan of redemption. Christ will usher it in when he returns. Peace will be restored and even expanded to all of creation. Why? Because God is there directly and we will dwell directly in his presence. There we will experience true shalom, eternal Shalom, eternal peace. That is what God is accomplishing through the work of his spirit in his people for the glory of Christ Jesus. And in the church, this is what Paul was getting at earlier, we should see kind of foreshadowings of what that will look like. Peace amongst us, love amongst us because of the work of the spirit. Where does that come from? From God himself. He is the God of peace. So brothers and sisters, Never cease to be amazed at who he is. That is the heart of worship. Never forget where we are headed, where all of creation is headed. Never forget the glory that awaits us when we will be with him and he will be with us. But we are not there yet. We all feel that. We on this earth, the Bible says, are still sojourners and pilgrims. Here in the wilderness of this earth, this earth is not our home. And so we pray with hope, we wait, we fix our eyes on the coming hope of Jesus Christ. And so Paul prays. What does he pray for the Thessalonian church? The same thing he's been instructing them in, sanctification and preservation. He prays for their sanctification or their holiness, and he prays for their preservation or their protection, that God would keep them. Now, these two things are, are quite overlapping. But let's look at them one by one. So first, Paul prays for their sanctification. Now, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. Well, Paul is praying that their sanctification, worked by God, would be complete. What is this? What is sanctification? That, that's not a word we use in everyday life. It's, it's holiness, 
Paul is praying for their, their holiness, their set-apartness. In fact, the, the words that are translated in the Bible, holiness and sanctification, are the same Greek word. Some translations just pick one and stick with it. So if you hear someone say holiness, you can think sanctification. If you hear someone say sanctification, you can think holiness. It's the same thing. The problem in English is we don't have a verb for holy. So Paul is, in a sense, asking God to holify them. Make them holy. Completely. Now, now this, again, this word holiness, sanctification, is, is used differently throughout Scripture. Sometimes it means the same thing as salvation. So sometimes it's used in a past tense. Sometimes it's used in a present tense, like here, and sometimes a future tense. I have been saved. I am being saved. I will be saved. All of these are simultaneously true, and we could say the same thing about sanctification. Paul uses it like this in 1 Corinthians 1, chapter, or verse 2. He says, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. Past tense, they have been sanctified. Called to be saints, which translated means holy ones, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So there is a sense when, in which all believers in Christ have been sanctified. When God gave you the gift of salvation, he sanctified you by the Holy Spirit. He set you apart for himself in Christ. That is a spiritual reality. His act of granting you spiritual life made you different, set apart from everyone else. This is why the most common word for a Christian in the New Testament is saint. It's kind of frustrating because Roman Catholics and others have confused this term for us. The word saint means holy one, and that's not some higher class of Christian. That is what the New Testament calls every Christian, a holy one. Why? Because we've been sanctified in the Holy Spirit, set apart for salvation. But Paul is not praying for their salvation here. He's already affirmed in chapter 1 that they have this. So, so what's going on? Paul is instead using it a little bit differently here. He's praying for their sanctification, for their growth in obedience to God's commands, that God would make them more and more like Jesus. This is the Christian life. It's a continual pursuit of growing in godliness, in holiness, in sanctification. It is the process of growing in our love for Jesus more and more, and then out of that love for him, our life and our actions and our thoughts look more and more like his. Sanctification in this sense is, is progressive. It's a, it's a process that is worked in us over time by the Holy Spirit. That is what Paul is praying for here. You could also think of it, you think of the idea of adoption. So the Bible says that when you have faith in Christ, God has adopted you into his family. Uh, because it's, the Bible says that Jesus wanted to be the firstborn of many brothers and sisters. Sanctification is the process by which we come to act and think like our older brother more and more. So we've been adopted into the family, but even in, any, in, a, in a physical adoption, that child does not begin to look and act like the family for a while. It's the process of becoming more and more like our new family. And again, this is an essential, an essential part of the Christian life because it is essential to the reason that God has saved us. 
Sanctification, holiness, godliness, growing in love for Christ. This is not something that you can choose to pursue if you really want to be, you know, like, like again, a second-class Christian. This is something the Bible says all Christians pursue. God has saved us, the Bible says, so that he might make us holy. That is the end of salvation. And that is what Paul is praying for. In Ephesians, in Ephesians Paul writes that we have been chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world, that, so for the purpose that we should be holy and blameless. There's our two words we see in our passage, holy and blameless before him. Why has God saved you? So that you can be holy and blameless before him. Sanctification is the process by which God makes this a reality in our life. That's what sanctification is. Now, again, we, we kind of misstep here when we think about this, when we think of it as primarily an individual effort, my personal sanctification. Now, that, that is an aspect of it. We also misstep here if we think of it as primarily negative. Holiness, sanctifica- sanctification is stopping doing bad things. When I grow in holiness, I'll just sin less. That is true, but that's a very small picture of what's going on. Sanctification we see here is corporate. He's praying for the church, and it's, it's positive. He's praying that they would grow in love. See, holiness is connected to love and peace within the body, the church. It is communal. A, a church growing in holiness and sanctification It is evident when a church is growing in these things, when it is operating in the unity and love of Christ. Part of your sanctification is how you interact with and serve the brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. Paul makes this evident. He prays earlier in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. He gives a very similar prayer. But listen to this. He says, And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another, And for all, as we do for you, so that, so here's love for one another, so that, with a purpose, he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. One of the ways that God is sanctifying us is by growing us in our love for each other and for everyone. It's corporate. The increase in communal love is the means by which God presents them blameless. And the same is true in our prayer here. This prayer concludes not only Paul's letter, but also follows up his section in chapter 5 on how the church is to behave towards one another. He he had instructed them to respect one another, to esteem and love their leaders, to be at peace with one another, to admonish the idle, to encourage the faint-hearted, to help the weak to be patient with everyone, always seeking good, always rejoicing, always praying, always giving thanks to God. What is that a picture of? Sanctification. Sanctification. So is sanctification stopping sinning? Yes. But the reason that sin loses its power and influence in our life is because we're growing in the good things of God. We're growing in love for Christ. We're growing in love for one another. And all of this is a fruit of the work of the Spirit in the church. 
fruit of the work of the Spirit in our lives. This is what growing holiness looks like in a church. So, brothers and sisters, if you want to grow in godliness, if I want to grow in godliness and holiness, we must do it together. There's, there's no such thing in the Bible as a Christian who's growing in holiness on their own apart from anyone else. You can't. You have to love other, other people as part of it. So we must pray that God grants us love in our hearts for each other so that his will can be accomplished through us. That is the picture that Paul presents here of sanctification. And what is the scope of this sanctification? Summed up right there by that word, completely. It's total. It's complete. It reaches into all areas. There's no area in your life or my life or or in our church that God will not sanctify. There's no such thing as selective sanctification. God, you can have this part of my life, but no, I'll keep this over here. Thank you. You can have this part. No, it doesn't work like that. There's no part of our church that we can say, no, we want to control how we do this part, but you can have this part. It doesn't work like that. All of our areas of our lives, corporately, individually, must be sanctified by the Spirit. They must be conformed to the things that God has revealed in His Word. There's there's no sin you must not fight against. There's no fruit of the Spirit you must not pursue to grow in. It's total and complete. And it's the outflowing of our justification and salvation. So enabled... And empowered by the Spirit, we as a body must work. We must expose ourselves to the means of grace. We must press forward in the Christian life with diligence. We must fight sin. We must glorify God. We must adorn the gospel with our lives. We must seek to love and serve one another and aim to shine in lights as lights in this world. But in all of this, we must remember that we are relying entirely upon God's grace and his power, remembering that it is God working in us to will and to work, remembering that every victory over temptation, every, every growth in love is a gift from him. And we must keep constantly before our eyes the cross of Christ, which reminds us that in all of our effort, in all of our striving, we are earning nothing. Rather, we strive and fight with all of our strength because we have been given everything in Christ. And that is sanctification and what Paul is praying for here, that God would sanctify them completely. But he also prays for their preservation. Look at the second part of his prayer. He prays that they would be, your, may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, immediately, it's a similar theme. This protection or this keeping that Paul is asking God to do is is complete. It's a different word that means somewhat similar. So, So much so, he says, your whole spirit, your whole soul, your whole body. In other words, all of you, all of you. This isn't just a spiritual thing, but a physical thing as well, which points us back to chapter four when he had instructed the Thessalonians to control their own bodies in sanctification, in holiness, in honor. There's no compartmentalization between physical and spiritual. All of it is to be protected. All of it is to be grown in sanctification. And he prays for their success. And what does he want? He wants God to keep them or to guard them or to protect and preserve them blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
What does he mean by that? Blameless. The idea behind the word blameless is, is again, a word of completeness or, or meeting all expectations without any faults, without any blemishes. When Christ returns, Paul wants God to have preserved the faith of these believers so that they are prepared to meet him. Similar idea to sanctification. Paul wants God to keep them in the faith until Christ returns so that they will experience the joy of his coming and not the terror of his judgment that we saw in chapter 5 earlier. That is the goal of the Christian life, brothers and sisters. To be sanctified, holy and completely, and preserved, blameless in spirit, soul, and body when Christ returns so that we might welcome him with joy. Now some of you, some of you hear that, and your response in your heart and your mind is, hallelujah, praise the Lord, I'm ready. Jesus, come quickly, take me home. I'm sick of this place. Your trust is in Christ, you're ready when he is, you hear a prayer like this, you're encouraged, you're comforted. Praise the Lord. But for some of you, these type of passages start bringing up feelings of, of fear, of inadequacy. You hear a word like blameless. You're like, oh, I'm not blameless. There's a lot to blame me for. Meeting all expectations. I fall short of a lot of expectations. You're tempted to hear a prayer like this as, as a burden of law upon you, as a burden of God's expectations, as if God is, is sitting here saying, why can't you meet my expectations? And you think, if, if this is the Christian life, if the goal is blamelessness and I have to get there, I can't do that. I can't be completely sanctified. I can't be blameless before God. I I sinned on my way to church. I've sinned while I'm here, and I'm sure I'll sin when I leave. Surely, I can't be blameless. There's no way I can meet the standard. I, I know this is a prayer, but it feels like an expectation. But verse 24 shatters all of those fears. Look at verse 24. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers and sisters, this is an act of God, not you. You do not have the power to sanctify yourself, and God does not expect you to. God does not call you to salvation and then say, okay, you've been saved. I've forgiven you of your sins. As long as you can sanctify yourself, then I'll save you when Christ comes back. No, 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 no. That may be what Roman Catholicism teaches. That may be what Mormonism teaches. That is not what the Bible teaches. God calls someone to salvation and then he never abandons them. Your salvation was not conditioned upon your obedience and your Future salvation is not conditioned upon your obedience. If your faith is in Christ, if your faith is in Christ, he has called you, he is calling you, and he will preserve you. He is the author, Hebrews says, he is the author of salvation, and he is the finisher of salvation. It's all God. This is where Paul's confidence lies, and this is where he directs us for hope, not to ourselves, not to our abilities, 
Not to our own amount of holiness we can muster up in ourselves. Not to our own efforts. No, Paul points us to God's faithfulness. He is faithful. He will surely do it. Where did your effort and your ability show up in that verse? It's not there. He is faithful. He will surely do it. This sanctification, this preservation is God's work, and so Paul can be confident. If it was our work, God help us, right? As I heard one pastor say once, if you could lose your salvation, you would. Amen. If it was dependent on us, we'd never make it. So Christian, take hope in this. God will sanctify you completely and keep you blameless until the coming of Christ. Why? Because you're great? No. Because you're trying really hard? No. Because you're better than someone else? No. Because he is faithful. Because he does not change. Because he has called you to salvation. He has sanctified you, set you apart, and he will continue working that sanctification in you until Jesus returns. God himself, his character and his promises are the ground for our assurance. Christ, as we'll sing in a few minutes, Christ is our sure and steady anchor. The cross of Calvary, God's love displayed for sinners, is the ballast of our assurance. Not our feelings, not how saved I feel, not how good I'm doing this week. Brothers and sisters, our hope is not in our own faithfulness. Our hope is in His faithfulness. So to those who are discouraged... To those of you this morning who are discouraged in your, your growth and godliness, to those who are riddled with anxiety because of your degree of holiness, your growth, to those whose knowledge of, of what they should be is high and the reality of your sins, you know you're here, those who feel like you should be more sanctified by now, let me offer some words of encouragement. And let me be clear too, I'm not talking about people who are just living in unrepentant sin. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about whose people, faith is in Christ and they're burdened by their inadequacy. Let me offer some encouragement. What do you do when you feel like this? If you haven't gone through a season like this, I'm sure you will. What do you do? You feel hopeless. You feel weighed down with your sins, inadequate. Let me tell you what not to do. You don't look inward for hope. You do not look to your own faithfulness. As Josh prayed earlier, you don't just say, well, I'll just try harder this time. That is the path to despair and depression and anxiety. And it doesn't work. That's law. All works of the flesh. Dead works, as Paul says. That's, that's a self-help mindset, not a sanctification mindset. What you do is you preach the gospel to your own heart by reminding yourself of who God is and of what he has promised us in the scriptures. And first, you pray. You imitate the apostle here. Pray for your sanctification. Your only hope, my only hope for sanctification is the power of God. And we access his power through prayer. Go to him on behalf of yourself. Go to him on behalf of others in the church. In prayer, pray, pray. Pray and be like the widow of Luke 18 who is persistent in prayer until God finally gives her what she wants. God is inviting us to persistent, annoyingly persistent prayer. So we pray. 
But also, remind yourself. Remind yourself of the glorious truths about God that you know. Remind yourself of of the glorious doctrines of God's infinite power and predestination. God has the power to sanctify you completely. And God has said in his word that he has predestined it to happen. The God who spoke the entire universe into existence out of nothing is able to make you like Jesus. And he has promised that he will. In fact, Romans 8.28, the verse we all know and love, teaches us that God is working all things together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, who are those who are called according to his purpose? People who have faith in Christ. He's working all things for your good. We often don't recite verse 29 and 30. What is this good that God is working, is using all things to work towards? Verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, if you're in Christ, that's you, he also predestined. For what? He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That's sanctification. Just as God in eternity past has chosen you for salvation, God in eternity past has chosen to conform you to the image of his son. He's chosen to sanctify you. He's chosen to keep you blameless before Christ on that day. Why? So that he, Christ, might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those, this is is called the golden chain. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Paul puts things that will happen in the future, glorification, in the past tense because it is so certain. Christian, your holiness and your sanctification are part of God's eternal and perfect plan. Decreed in eternity past, By the very same triune God who has displayed his love for you by sending his son to the cross, by sending his spirit into your heart, by giving you faith. (laughs) Stop thinking so highly of yourself. Your sins and your failures are not powerful enough to mess up God's perfect and eternal plan. He knew how weak and how foolish and how sinful you are. That's why he sent Jesus to the cross. He does not now look at your foolishness and say, well, you'd have no excuse now. No, no. He has paid for your sins completely and fully. So remind yourself of God's power and predestination. One of the best ways to do this, memorize scripture, sing the songs that we sing. These are doing the exact same thing. Remind yourself also of God's immutability. Really fancy word for the fact that God never changes. He's never changing, ever. Jesus is the same today as he was yesterday and on into eternity. His love for you never waxes or wanes again. Christian, you are not powerful enough to enact change within the eternal God. He never changes. He purchased you with his own blood upon the cross and he will not now abandon you. You will persevere. You will finally be sanctified. Why? Because God never changes. And finally, I mean, there's many things we could talk about here, but finally, remind yourself of your adoption. God has adopted you into his family by the faith-creating work of the Holy Spirit. When you were dead in your trespasses and sins and an enemy of God, that's when he chose you. 
He will not now unadopt you and disown you because of your sins. He did not adopt you probationally. He did not adopt you conditionally. He has not adopted you based upon any amount of worthiness or goodness within you. He has instead adopted you eternally. And so, brothers and sisters, he will sanctify you wholly. He will make you into the image of Christ. He called you, he justified you, he has sanctified you, and he will continue to sanctify you. And he will glorify you on the day of Christ. He will not leave the work of his hands incomplete. The God who is unable to lie, the God who never changes, the God who is infinitely powerful, the God who has decreed all things that come to pass has promised to do it. He has brought you into his family and he will surely make you like your older brother. Brothers and sisters, everything, everything is ours in Christ Jesus. Ephesians says that we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Our growth and sanctification is certainly a spiritual blessing. And it is the realization living out of what is already true of us in Christ Jesus. You have been sanctified. Now pray to God that he would sanctify you more and more until Christ returns. Remembering always that he is faithful, he will surely do it. That's Paul's prayer. It's how he ends his letter, but he, he gives these three brief statements at the end, all four. We'll go through them quickly, don't worry. Look at how he ends. This is important. Brothers, pray for us. So we've seen that prayer is essential. The Thessalonians needed prayer. And even we see here, the great apostle needs prayer. Prayer, again, Prayer is the lifeblood of the Christian life, and prayer must be central to our church. Every good thing that we have, every step of progress we make in sanctification comes through prayer. Every church that is planted, every missionary that is sent, every conversion that happens is accomplished through prayer. So pray. Pray for each other. And let me just say this. Come to our prayer and praise nights. We, last Wednesday of every month, we gather in the fellowship hall to pray together. And it has become, for all of, everyone who comes regularly, I mean, for me, it's just one of my favorite times of the month. We come together, we pray. This past Wednesday, we met together for about an hour. We prayed for one another, and it was such an encouraging, strengthening time. It's, it's where we weep with one another in prayer. It's where we rejoice with one another in prayer, thanking God, praying to God, interceding for one another, praying for holiness, praying for his faithfulness. Wonderful time. We see this in the apostles' letter. Brothers, pray for us. It's essential. And then Paul says this. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. So you heard the apostle. Pucker up. Just kidding. Yeah, everyone turn to your neighbor. No, please don't. Um, We joke, right? I mean, it's kind of funny because it's a weird thing for our culture. Um, Still very normal in Middle Eastern cultures for acquaintances to kiss each other and things like this, but, but there, is a, there is an amount of serious theology of the body here in this. The kiss in the ancient world and, and still in some places today was a sign of honor, a sign of love. It was a sign here of the intimacy between the members of the church, and it represented in the ancient world and other cultures familial love, the family love. This is how the early Christians lived. They literally understood themselves because of the teaching of the word as a new family. 
more important than their blood family. Blood family. So Paul says, greet each other like family. Treat each other like family. This is your true family. This is, these are your brothers and sisters. In Christ, we saw this in Romans 8, in Christ, God has constituted a new family and it is to be marked by a holy love and a holy intimacy. This is not a, the idea of a spiritual family is not a metaphor. It's a reality. I mean, think of this, kind of put yourself in the mindset of the early church. This is radical. Roman and Jewish societies of the time were both highly stratified, separate. People did not interact with those of other classes, but in the church, you have this little community of people. You have Jews, Greeks, Romans, slaves, rich people, poor people, women, men, all classes coming together, equal at the foot of the cross, all receiving the same familial greeting, the holy kiss. It would have scandalized a first century Roman citizen to have seen a slave receive a kiss from a Roman businessman. But that is the beauty of the church, the beauty of the gospel. And the church's unity is displayed in this idea. Now, it's fascinating and kind of funny to study the history of the holy kiss in the early church. Um, in, In the early church, first couple of centuries, it actually was part of the liturgy. If you read Justin Martyr, he he says that what they would do is is a new convert would be baptized. After they were baptized, they would come down and they would receive the holy kiss from the congregation and that would signify their entrance into the family and then they would receive their first communion as again, another signifier that now they are part of the family. Really cool symbolism. Again, don't worry if you want to be baptized, we're not going to line you up and just give you a smooch, okay? But we will welcome you into the family. But things in church history eventually degenerated. You just see these funny instructions. A second century church father writes, he has to write some qualifying rules for the holy kiss because apparently some people were abusing it. Human nature hasn't changed that much. He says, if you go back for a second kiss because you liked the first one, you've committed a great sin. And you can just picture these situations like, I'll have another, please. No, thank you. Um, In the third century, church father Clement of Alexandria has to clarify that this is supposed to be a closed mouth kiss, people. Um, This is why church history is really fun. In the fourth century, we have a, a church rule book that says, okay, and this is my paraphrase. It says, okay, men are gonna kiss men, women are gonna kiss women. No more of this uh, intersex kissing, please. Um, And then in the 5th century, they just say, you know what? Men, you sit on this side of the sanctuary. Women, you sit over here. Okay? Apparently, they had forgotten the holy part of holy kiss. And thus, kind of summed up, this is why we can't have nice things in the church. Um, So, we will not be practicing this in all physical nature. But, but... We have fun with it, but don't forget the family nature of the church. That's what really shines forth here. This is our family, brothers and sisters. That term that gets thrown around a lot in the Bible, brother, sister, in the first century, that was really weird. That's why the Roman citizens who didn't understand Christianity, they always accused the Christians of incest. 
Because they're like, you come together and you're all brothers and sisters and you're kissing and like, what is going on? I mean, you can see how from like an outsider's perspective, they just didn't, they didn't understand it, but, but it shows you the radical family nature of true Christianity. These are our family. That's why the church in Acts is always sharing everything with one another. No one is in need because when one sees someone in need, they meet that need. It's a family. A church is a family. Paul then says this, I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. That seems a bit out of place. Kind of like, whoa, Paul, an oath? Why so serious all of a sudden? Well, Paul knows, it's interesting, Paul knows the importance of this letter. The doctrine and encouragement that it contains, Paul knows, is from the Holy Spirit, and it's crucial to the survival of this church and so he wants to make sure that they understand that they are to read it out loud when they gather together for worship. And not only that, but he says, to all the brothers, which most likely means what he's getting at here is, don't only read it in your gathering, but any other Christians you come across, read it to them. We know from church history that this is true because immediately as churches started receiving these letters, they started making copies. That's why we have the Bible now. Paul says a very similar thing at the end of Colossians. He says, And when this letter, the letter to the Colossians, has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. So you see what he's doing? I'm writing this letter to you. After you're done with it, trade it to the church of Laodicea and have, take the letter that I wrote to them and switch them. So they are specific to churches, but Paul is even, and the Holy Spirit through Paul is indicating here that it's much more than just a personal letter. So the words of God. Indications that the New Testament, even as it was being written, was being read aloud as part of worship. As the canon is being formed, since the day it was written, the Christians were recognizing these are Holy Spirit-inspired words. That's not some later development as, you know, some of these books like Da Vinci Code try to make us think. It's from the truth from the very beginning. So Paul doesn't leave it to chance. He doesn't assume they know what to do with this letter. He instructs them, and in fact, obligates them to read it out loud when they gather for worship. And finally, Paul closes with a benediction that brings this whole letter to a close. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Which ties the whole letter together. He had begun this way, chapter 1, verse 1 of 1 Thessalonians, to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. And he ends with a prayer to the God of peace and a blessing of the grace of Christ. This benediction is, is not a mere formality. One commentator put it this way. He says, the blessing of grace from the Lord Jesus Christ embraces the, the fullness of salvation that comes from the one who is the sole and sovereign Savior. Brothers and sisters, as, as Charles Spurgeon once wrote, salvation is all of grace. It's by grace alone that we've been saved. It's by grace alone that we've been sanctified. It's by grace alone that we will be sanctified. And it's by grace alone that we will be, we will be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls us is faithful. He will surely do it. So take heart, brothers and sisters. Though our sins are many, 
His mercy is more. He has nailed the debt of our sin to the cross and conquered over it, and he is returning. He's returning to reign on earth. He is returning to resurrect us from the dead. He's returning to establish eternal peace and shalom where he will dwell with us and we will be his people. And God himself will be with us as our God. So keep your eyes, keep your heart, keep your mind focused on that. That is our future. That is our inheritance. Let us together set our minds and hearts on that reality. And in the meantime, let us continue to exhibit that peace in shalom. Let us continue to exhibit that sanctification as we pray that God would continue to sanctify us, that he would keep us blameless until the day of Christ, all the while knowing that the one who calls us is faithful. He will surely do it. Let's pray.